You guys can turn again to the book of James. While you're turning there, I did want to let you know our missions conference is coming up here in uh, just a couple weeks. Uh, It's called Go Conference Around Here, our Global Outreach Week. Uh, We're going to do something a little different this year. I'm really excited about it. Rather than focus on a part of the world, as we've often done in the past, we're going to focus on creativity. We're going to focus about how God uses the the creativity that he has gifted us with to reach the nations for Jesus Christ. We're going to see how God is doing extraordinary things through remarkably creative believers to take the gospel to places it's never been heard before. So really, really exciting conference this year. Um, We gave you when you were walking in a handout that looks like this. If you didn't get one, if you grab one on your way out, it, it walks you through the events of that week, a number of opportunities to hear about how creativity is being used on the mission field. And on the back, um, one of our big events is a movie night on on Friday, um, November 9th. You'll have an opportunity to actually see um, in person, you'll get to see an example of how God is using creativity as we see a movie that God has brought together to introduce people um, to Jesus Christ. So really, really neat opportunities this year. We'd love to have you guys join us. So Um, Today we're looking at James 3. We're going to look from verse 13 to actually the beginning of chapter 4. And this is actually the first part of a two-part message on the subject of wisdom. That's what we'll be looking at uh, today. And to help us to wrap our minds around this thing called wisdom, we're going to start in a very different place. Um, A number of years ago, I was in Central Asia. Um, in one of the former Soviet republics. And, and in this Soviet republic, I was walking down the street and I came to a stall that sold clothing. And in that stall, I found this really great shirt, a Christian Dior shirt in this stall. And I, I should have known, okay, well, where am I? It's, it's probably not the real thing, but, but a really nice shirt. I, I put it on, it feels good. I look inside and there on the tag, sure enough, it says a Christian Dior shirt, except they misspelled the word shirt. They left out the R really, really significant letter, an unfortunate spelling error that actually very accurately described the quality of that shirt. Um, What I learned on that day is that our world is full of counterfeits. We live in a world that is full of counterfeit goods. Uh, Just a a few examples. Um, You can find a Kugi purse if you can't afford Gucci. You can buy it at a Parati store um, right down the street from where you can buy your Adidas uh, if you can't afford the real thing. And and just a block over from that, you can go to the electronics aisle where you can buy a phony PlayStation or a Pasunic TV. Um, Or best, if, if you just can't afford a Nintendo Wii, next best thing, you can get a Nintendo Wii Wii. Love that one. Um, No brand is immune to counterfeiting. Even the great Apple is counterfeited. In Asia, you can get a fake iPhone 4 or a a fake iPad, or or actually they've gotten it down to an art. They've they've counterfeited whole stores, a fake Apple store. On the inside, it looks real, but um, you get a clue as you're walking in. You'll notice how they spelled the word store. Pretty, Pretty sure Apple knows how to spell the word store. Our world is full of counterfeits. Anything that is valuable, anything that is desirable is counterfeited. Whether you're talking about products or currencies or companies, anything valuable is counterfeited. And that is not only true of tangible things like those products, that's true of far more important things. Like what we're going to look at this morning, wisdom. Wisdom is something that everyone wants. Wisdom's desirable. It's it's valuable. Just think about what we call the opposite of a wise person, a fool. 
That's a put down. No one wants to be known as a fool. Everyone wants to be wise. Wisdom is valuable. And like all valuable things, because it's valuable, it's been ripped off. It has been counterfeited. We live in a world where there are two versions of wisdom. There's a real thing and there's the counterfeit. But the counterfeit of wisdom is not like those products I showed you a moment ago that were shoddy and misspelled. The counterfeit of wisdom, the fake wisdom, is actually a really good forgery, a really convincing counterfeit. Counterfeit wisdom looks good on the surface. Counterfeit wisdom will will give you success in life, at least for a little while. Um, It will make your life work, at least for a while. It is such a convincing counterfeit, in fact, that the vast majority of the world has bought into it. Vast majority of human beings on this planet live and die by the tenets of counterfeit wisdom. They think that they're wise, but they're actually fools because they've bought into the fake. James doesn't want us to make that same mistake. James doesn't want us to get lured into buying counterfeit wisdom. He wants us to possess true wisdom. And so that's what he focuses on in in the passage we're going to look at this morning. How do you spot the fake? How do you tell the difference between true wisdom and counterfeit wisdom? So what we're looking at this morning. Let's jump right into this subject of wisdom. Look with me at chapter 3, starting in verse 13. We'll just look at the very first part of this verse. James asks a question. Who among you is wise and understanding? Now, to understand what he's asking here, look back at the beginning of chapter 3. Let's set up the context. Beginning of chapter 3, James says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. As it would appear, we don't know a whole lot about what was going on with James' audience, but it would appear that the people to whom he's writing, that a whole lot of them were clamoring to be teachers in the church. They wanted to have the, the authority and prestige that go with being a teacher over God's people. And so they're clamoring to be teachers. So in verse 13, James says, okay, you who want to be teachers, you who who claim to be wise and have understanding, step forward and let's look at your life. Let's look to see whether you have true wisdom or counterfeit wisdom. That's what he'll spend the rest of the passage helping us do is to see, do we have true wisdom or the fake, the counterfeit? Now, to do that, to get to that reasoning, the first thing we need to do is define the key word. What is wisdom? Not going to understand this passage if you don't understand what wisdom is. Now, uh, wisdom is a really hard word to wrap your mind around. I've been trying for years, honestly, to come up with a simple, succinct definition of the concept of wisdom, and it has eluded me because it's such a big idea. The human race has been consumed with this idea of wisdom. The Greeks pursued it passionately. The Jews wrote about it at length. The Bible itself is full of passages about wisdom. It's a big thing, a complex thing. And, and when you study what the Bible says about wisdom, you, you realize that there's, it's more than one thing. It's actually three related things. Three related things that the Bible means by this this word wisdom. First, when the Bible talks about wisdom, it's talking about discernment. To be wise is to have discernment. That's the basic, the first basic piece of wisdom. Now, Now, discernment is a significant word. Discernment is not intelligence. Discernment is not IQ. Discernment is not information. Discernment is not the education level that you have obtained. 
Discernment is an ability. It is the ability to, to see what is best and most important. Discernment is the ability to see a whole lot of options on the table and you know which one is best. That's discernment. And that's what the wise men of the Old Testament are commended for. Guys like Joshua and Solomon and Daniel. It's their ability to see through a complex situation and choose that which is best. That's discernment. Um, It says of Daniel in Daniel 5, there's a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel. I like that, that phrase right at the end, discernment, the ability in the midst of great complexity to solve a problem, to choose, to see what is best. That's discernment. That's the the first part of wisdom, but that's not all that wisdom is scripturally. That's just the first facet of wisdom. That discernment leads to the next facet of wisdom, and that's skillful living. Skill put into practice in your life. That's actually what the Hebrew word for wisdom, chokmah, means. It's just a person who lives skillfully. They bring expertise to every area of their lives. So so their marriage, they do it skillfully. Parenting, skillfully. Their job, they do it skillfully. They handle money, skillfully. They bring skill to every area of life. They take that discernment that they have, discernment of, of what is best, and they apply it with skill to life. Okay, so, so wisdom includes skillful living. It's, it's the ability to bring this skill into your life um, so that you're able to master every area of life. And, and for those of you who've read Proverbs, this is what Proverbs particularly means by wisdom. Skillful living that helps you to master life. And so Proverbs has all of these great uh, maxims. They're not really promises, they're maxims. If you do this, if you live in a wise way, you're going to have a long life that's healthy, that's happy. You're going to have good relationships, good kids. You're going to have prosperity and success in life. That's not a promise. It's not true always, but it is generally true. If you live wisely, those good things, those successful things will be part of your life. Okay, so wisdom includes discernment, the ability to see and choose what's best, applied to life through skillful living. And the final facet of biblical wisdom is a pattern a pattern or way of life. When you look at wisdom in scripture, wisdom is not just one choice. It's not one choice that you make in one particular day. Now, in any given choice, you can make a wise decision or a foolish decision, but wisdom is a pattern of choices that day after day after day, you continually make choices that shape your destiny, that move your life in a successful direction. What we're trying to say here is that wisdom is ultimately practical. It is an application of discernment and skill to the everyday decisions of life so that you live a successful life. I love how William Barclay put it. Wisdom is entirely practical. It is not philosophical speculation and intellectual knowledge. It is concerned with the business of living. Great way to put it. Concerned with the business of living. Wisdom is knowledge turned into action in the decisions and personal relationships of everyday life. Okay, so biblically speaking, wisdom, three things that go into that word, discernment, so you can choose what's best, skill applied in every area of life, in a pattern, day after day after day, you're living this way. Now, just so that we're completely obvious and and, and clear here, when we look at what the Bible means by wisdom, what it's telling us is that you can have 10 PhDs and a Nobel Prize and be a fool. 
Because biblical wisdom has nothing to do with intelligence, education, or achievements. In contrast, you can never graduate from high school, be a mechanic for your entire life, and be wise. Because wisdom is about the ability to see what's best applied through skillful living day after day after day so that it becomes a habit. Okay, so that's this biblical idea of wisdom. Now the challenge for us though is that there are two versions of this wisdom that are available to us. True wisdom and counterfeit wisdom and both of them offer us all three of these. Both true wisdom and counterfeit wisdom promise you this. They promise to give you discernment so you can select what's best. They promise to give you skills so that you can master life. They promise to give you a way of life that leads to success. True and counterfeit wisdom offer all three. So how do we distinguish? How do we know if we're looking at the true article, true wisdom, or the counterfeit, fake wisdom that is out there and so prevalent in this world? How do you tell the difference between true and counterfeit wisdom? That's the bulk of our passage this morning. Look with me starting in verse 13. Let's read the rest of chapter 3. James says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Okay, so James is contrasting true wisdom from counterfeit wisdom. And for each of them, he's going to describe the source, the character, and the outcome. For true and counterfeit wisdom, the source, the character, and the outcome. Let's start with the counterfeit. Counterfeit wisdom. What can we say about counterfeit wisdom? Well, James tells us the source of counterfeit wisdom. There are actually three sources that he lays out there for us at the end of verse 15. Uh, It is earthly, natural, and demonic. So first source, it is earthly. And by earthly, what James means, it is of this world. It is of humanity. This wisdom is not from heaven. It's not of God. It's from us. It's what man can come up with. It is characteristic of this world. As Barclay put it well, the wisdom, this counterfeit wisdom measures success in worldly terms and its aims are worldly aims. It's all about this world, about what you can get in this world. So it's earthly. Second, he says it's natural. Now, the word natural uh, can be good, how we use it in English, actually how it's used in Greek also, but here it's not good. Here he means natural in the sense of not spiritual. It's what humanity can come up with on their own apart from God. That is counterfeit wisdom. It's of the flesh, you could say, instead of of the spirit. Third description he says is it is demonic. What he wants us to understand is this counterfeit variety of wisdom does not come from us. Human beings did not create counterfeit wisdom. Actually, it was around before us. It was originated by Satan and his demons. It's interesting, biblically, if you look at Satan, one of the things that, you, that we do know about him, there's not a whole lot that we know, but one thing we do know is that Satan is not good at creating. Satan, in fact, cannot create anything. All he can do is pervert. He can twist, he can ruin, he can destroy. Um, And so Satan takes that which is good, that which God has made, like wisdom, and he can't create something different. All he can do is counterfeit it. All he can do is rip it off, fake it, twist it. 
Okay, so Satan is the ultimate agent behind this wisdom. He's the one who created this counterfeit variety of wisdom. So you, you could summarize this. Counterfeit wisdom comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's where it originates from. Okay, so telling us where it comes from, now James is going to move on and tell us what it looks like. What are the characteristics of those who follow counterfeit wisdom? What does their life look like? What are their motives in life? What is it that drives them and moves them? He tells us three things that drive them. First, bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy right there in verse 14. It's repeated uh, multiple times. James mentions jealousy three times. There's 14, verse 16. He'll do it again. Chapter four, verse two. Uh, Interestingly, jealousy, zealous in Greek, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a good thing. Jealousy, by definition, is just intense feelings about something. So in the Bible, jealousy can be good. What is a good example of jealousy? God's jealousy. His intense desire for you, that's good, but here it's clearly bad. You know that because of the adjective that precedes it, bitter. This is bad jealousy. And when when jealousy is used in that bad sense, uh, what it means, the basic idea of it, is that you have intense negative feelings over another's achievements or success. Or another way you could put it, you have intense selfish desire to possess things that are not yours. Basically, it's like what we think of by the English word jealous or envy. That's what James has in mind here. Envious of another person's success or another person's possessions. Now, what does this look like in our lives? What are some examples of this this bitter jealousy that was consuming James' audience? Uh, For them, based on the context of chapter 3, it was primarily envy over power. They all want to be teachers. They all want to have influence and be the guy in control. So they're envious of other people's influence and power. Um, In our lives, it could be very broad. This this bitter jealousy, this would be what's going on in your heart and in your stomach um, when a coworker is promoted instead of you. So you were both hoping for that promotion. You wanted that bigger paycheck. He gets promoted or she gets promoted and you don't, um, but you're not able to celebrate with them. Man, that's great news for them, but you can't rejoice. You just feel bitter. Life is so not fair that they got it and you didn't. That is the idea of bitter jealousy. Or let's say a friend of yours um, gets a new house. They get a new house, thousand square feet bigger. It's got granite countertops, but you can't celebrate with them because you're so torn up inside. You wanted the granite. You wanted that extra room and they got it. You're jealous of it. I'll give you an example from my own life because if you think that jealousy does not come with preaching, you're crazy. If you think that we're immune to jealousy, you're crazy. Jealousy is all over pastors and ministry. We fight it all the time. Here's an example in my own life this semester. So um, I hear that breakaway is up to 10,000 students on a Tuesday night. First thought that comes across my mind, awesome. That's incredible. Second thought that comes across my mind, where are my 10,000 people? Why is my ministry not 10,000 people? Now, I know we'd have to remove the walls, but, but not that notwithstanding, where are all my people? Now, to my credit, as soon as that thought crosses my mind, man, I'm convicted. I know that is a demonic thought. That is a sinful thought. I confess it to the Lord, but I'm shocked at how easily that comes. That's my natural response to someone else's success. This ministry that's doing great, I should be rejoicing. Thought that comes to my mind is why don't I have that? That's bitter jealousy. You want the achievements of others. You want what they have. That's the first motive or or attitude behind the wisdom of the world. The second, James says, second thing that drives worldly wisdom is selfish ambition. 
Selfish ambition. Now, uh, that word was used very infrequently in the ancient world. Actually, the only example we have outside of this passage is Aristotle used this word to describe a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. So, kind of funny, kind of ironic that, that we'd be studying this this particular week. All those advertisements that you are bombarded with on the TV, the radio, the internet, where they, they spin the truth, they, they distort the truth for their own candidate's gain. That is selfish ambition by definition in the Greek. They're doing whatever it takes for their candidate to succeed. That's the idea. Success by any means. Success at any cost. They'll do whatever it takes to be successful compared to other people. So I'll give you some examples of this. Um, Success by any means. This is a student who cheats on a test and blows the curve. Everyone else suffers because they cheated. They get the A, but everyone else hurts. That's selfish ambition. Or this is the guy who at work, he's on a team, but there's a particular member of the team who frustrates him or who is competing with him or who is slowing him down. And so rather than try to help that person, you throw him under the bus. You get him fired, demoted, moved, whatever it is, that is selfish ambition. Um, Or let's say that the team is doing really well, the team succeeds, and this is the guy who takes all the credit. Rather than share the credit with the team, he takes it all for himself so that he can climb that career ladder. Success at any cost. Success by any means. Now, if you have not already, you will at some point in your life face this one. Students, you're going to face it soon. As you go out into the working world, at some point you will have to decide what are the means by which I will pursue success. Where am I going to draw the line? Will I do whatever it takes? For me, working in the engineering field, I faced a very clear choice. I mean, to the point of a manager telling me this choice. I could either climb the career ladder or I could volunteer at my church. I can't have both because they expected me to work 60 or 70 hours a week. I can have all that I wanted. Management success, leadership, ownership, all of that's available to me or I serve other people. I had to face a choice. Success at any cost or do I draw the line? If we pursue success at any cost, that is selfish ambition. That characterizes the world. That shouldn't surprise me that my manager put it out for me in those plain terms, because that's how the world operates. Third thing that characterizes wisdom, or this wisdom from the world, this counterfeit wisdom, is that it is pleasure-seeking. And to understand this one, let's look at chapter 4. James continues his discussion of counterfeit wisdom in the first three verses of chapter 4. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. This word pleasures, it appears twice. Um, What James is talking about is the pleasures of life. And the pleasures of this life, they can be neutral or good. It can be the desire for good food or comfort or luxury or entertainment or great vacations, a new house. Uh, Or they can be sinful, desires for immorality or debauchery. Um, It's sinful, actually, the word in verse 2, lust. I don't know if you knew this, but lust in Greek, it's not necessarily good or bad. Lust just means a strong desire for something. It's going to be something that's good, something that's morally neutral, or something that's sinful. Um, James is not critiquing the pleasures of this world or the the desires of this world. What he is critiquing is the no-holds-barred pursuit of those pleasures. That's the issue. Whether you're pursuing something good or bad, how are you pursuing it? 
Is that your focus in life? Is your whole life dedicated to the enjoyment of the pleasures of this life? That is sinful. That's what he's critiquing. That's the drive behind this counterfeit wisdom. You are living for the pleasures of this life. You are not living for the glory of God. You are not living to spread the gospel of God. You are living to get, to consume, to have the good things that this world offers you. That's what drives the wisdom of the world, the desire to get more, to have more, to get the next thing. So those are the three things that describe the the person or the, the attitude of this wisdom of the world, this counterfeit wisdom. It is dominated by jealousy of those who succeed over you. It's dominated by selfish ambition. Get ahead at any cost. It's dominated by, uh, by seeking the pleasures of this world. You want what this world has to offer. That's what drives you in life. That's your motivation for what you do. So James describes for us what this counterfeit wisdom looks like. Next, he describes the outcome of it, the result of it. What does this counterfeit wisdom do for you and for other people? There's three results that he gives of this counterfeit wisdom. The first is it deceives you. If you follow the counterfeit wisdom that this world offers, it will make a fool of you. It will deceive you. Look again at verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Um, Literally what he's saying is if it's true that you have jealousy and ambition, then um, don't boast that you are wise. Because when you boast that you are wise, all you're doing is lying against the truth. You think you're wise, but you are a fool. You are deceived. You've deceived yourself. You thought, man, I'm such a wise guy. Look at all my success. Look at all my achievements in life. But your attitude proves you're a liar. It proves that you're a fool. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 1.20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? If you are following the wisdom of this world, if you are wise in the eyes of this world, then Paul's saying by definition, you're deceived. You are a fool because you are following that which makes a fool of you. God will prove it one day that you've deceived yourself. So that's the first outcome of the wisdom of the world. It deceives you. It makes a fool of you. The second, it leads to conflict. Leads to conflict. The number of words that Paul uses in this passage describe the conflict that comes when we follow the wisdom of this world. First, in in verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder. Disorder, it's a word that means opposition to established authority. Disorder, chaos is the idea here. What James is saying, he's looking at our relationships, in, in our friendships, in our family, in our companies, in our community, in our church. When we follow the wisdom of the world, the result is chaos. The result is strife and discord and disunity and schisms and divide. Okay, so the wisdom of the world brings disorder. The second word that he will use is quarrels. You see it twice in chapter four, verse one and verse two. And that word quarrels in Greek, it's almost always used to describe an actual literal battle. Like you pull out a sword and you're gonna kill someone. That's the idea of quarrel. It's a, it's a battle, it's warfare. Now here it's not literal warfare, it's figurative. When you are pursuing the things of this world, if, when you're living by worldly wisdom, you're gonna have conflict and war in your relationships. Your family is going to be divided. Your church is going to be divided. Your community is going to be divided. You're going to bring warfare into your relationships when you follow the ways of this world. Same idea in the next word, conflicts. There in verses one and two, a conflict, that Greek word means a battle fought without weapons. 
When you follow the wisdom of this world, you are constantly at war with other people. You may not be hitting them with actual weapons, but you're at war with your words and your attitudes. And it's really simple to explain. It's really simple to wrap your minds around this concept. The wisdom of the world is pursuing what the world offers. Promotions, success, fame, pleasures, possessions. But there's a problem. There is a limited supply of all of those things. If I have it, then you don't. There's a limited supply and we're all pursuing it. Then how are we going to feel towards one another? In competition, in conflict. The only way for me to have what I want, the pleasures, the possessions of this world is to beat you, to defeat you. That's why the wisdom of the world always leads to conflict, always. Whether you're talking about the world in general or the church in particular, this is true for unbelievers and believers as well. Let me give you an example. Here's something that happened not long ago in the city of Jerusalem. A violent scene erupted Sunday between a group of monks gathered at what millions consider one of the holiest places on earth. This was the scene at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as Armenian and Greek Orthodox monks began to shove and push one another. The incident flared up as the Armenian monks began a procession commemorating the 4th century discovery of the cross believed to have been used to crucify Jesus. The Greeks objected, saying the march should not begin without one of their monks present. That's when this scene broke out. The church, located in Jerusalem's old city, marks the traditional site of Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. Two clergymen were arrested and questioned following the incident. For MSNBC.com, I'm Dara Brown. A fight in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. In terms of worldwide Christianity, that's the most famous church there is. I'm sure this looked really good to the non-Christians out there. Bunch of monks laying haymakers on each other. Over what? Why were they fighting? Well, over who gets to walk in the line of this procession on a holy day. That's all it's about. Who gets to be up front? You or me? Well, only one person can, so we're going to fight over it. They ended up going to jail over it, actually. Because the wisdom of the world, the pursuit of what this world has to offer you, this selfish ambition and jealousy, it always leads to conflict and strife, always. And ultimately, look at that word. You may not have thought much about it, but there at the beginning of verse 2, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Murder, interestingly, always throughout the New Testament, that refers to literal murder, like me killing you. Now, is James' audience actually at the point where believers are killing other believers? Probably not. Probably not. It's hard to imagine that James would just kind of pass over that. Probably if they're killing each other, he would dedicate a chapter to don't murder, you would think. But I think what James is doing here is he's taking us to the ultimate end of where conflict will lead. If you walk in the wisdom of this world, what it's going to do for you in your relationships, in your families, in your community, in your church, is it's going to put you in conflict with one another. If left unchecked, that conflict will grow into actual violence like the video we just saw. I think the other thing he's doing is he wants us to understand when God looks at his people, when God looks at the church, when we're in conflict with one another, in God's eyes, that's as bad as killing each other. James is just borrowing words from his big brother, Jesus. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you have heard this, that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. He's saying that anger, conflict with one another, with fellow believers is in God's eyes legally equivalent to killing each other. 
That's how seriously God takes this conflict that comes from following the wisdom of the world. Love how Philo put it. Philo was a first century Jewish philosopher who shared a lot of thoughts with James. Uh, Philo said, For the wars, famous in tragedy, have all flowed from one source desire, either for money or glory or pleasure. Over these things, the human race goes mad. Over our desires to have what the world provides. That's what wisdom of the world is about. Counterfeit wisdom. You are seeking what this world can get you. That desire has led to every war, every battle, every act of violence the world has ever known. So worldly wisdom leads to conflict. Deception, conflict. Third thing it leads us to is evil. That's kind of James' summary statement uh, there at the end of verse 16. There is disorder and every evil thing, every evil thing. He's not looking at one particular type of sin or evil. He's saying that when you pursue the wisdom of this world, when you live for what this world offers, that opens the door to every form of sin and evil in the world. Becomes an excuse for every form of evil out there. And so James wants us to understand there's a true version of wisdom and there's a counterfeit version of wisdom. If you embrace the counterfeit, like the vast majority of the human race, then it will fill you with selfish ambition and with jealousy and with a a pursuit, a desire for the pleasures of this world. And those desires, those motives will bring deception and conflict and evil into your life. That's what counterfeit wisdom looks like. It will destroy you. It will destroy everyone around you. So you don't want that. James wants us to reject, to avoid counterfeit wisdom. That's why he describes it in such clear detail so we can spot the fake and avoid it. Now, having told us in detail about the fake, he's going to tell us in detail about the genuine article. What does real wisdom look like? What does true, authentic wisdom look like? He's going to do the same thing. He's going to tell us where it comes from, its source. He's going to tell us its character, what it looks like. And he's going to tell us its outcome, what it results in. So let's look at that for a moment. True wisdom. In terms of the source, James tells us true wisdom comes from above comes from above, so not from the ceiling, from heaven and ultimately from the guy in heaven, from God. James is saying true wisdom comes down from God. It's, it's not something that we arrive at. It's not something that we deduce through our education or our IQ. True wisdom is a gift from God. James said the same thing back in chapter one, verse five. Look at that for just a second. Chapter one, verse five. We studied that a while ago. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Again, wisdom does not come through your education. It does not come through your experiences and your achievements. It comes only from God. He is the only distributor of genuine wisdom. If you're getting wisdom from somewhere other than God, then it's fake. Because God is the only source of the real deal. He is the only giver of true wisdom. It's a gift. It comes supernaturally as a gift into your life when you ask God for it. So true wisdom comes from God. See the same idea in Proverbs. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. I love that idea of storing up wisdom. It's like God is in heaven with a massive reservoir of wisdom just waiting to pour it out in your life. Just waiting for you to ask for it. Here it is. Quit looking for it in the things of this world. I got all you need. And so God is the only source of true wisdom. Uh, then describing the source, James then describes the character of it. What does true wisdom look like? Or, or what does a person look like who is possessing true wisdom, who is walking in true, authentic wisdom? What does their life look like? James described that in detail 
In verse 17, he said, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. Whole bunch of descriptions here. Let's unpack these a little bit. The first is the most important when he says first pure. He's saying this is the one that matters the most. True wisdom is pure. Pure hognos in Greek. It describes being innocent, being holy. It was used in the ancient world to describe the person who was pure enough to approach the gods. And that's the idea here. You are pure enough to be in God's presence. The wisdom that comes down from God makes you holy. It makes you pure and righteous in the way that you live. That's the most important thing about it. The wisdom from above makes you acceptable in the sight of God. It helps you live a holy life. That's the big idea of true wisdom. James will use all of the following descriptions in that verse to describe what it looks like to be this pure person, this this truly wise person. Kind of come in three groups here, a bunch of descriptions, but you can break them down into three groups. The first group describes the attitude of the truly wise. The attitude of the truly wise, it is peaceable, gentle, and reasonable. Now, what do those three words mean? Peaceable just means peace-loving. You are a person who really likes peace. You seek peace. In every relationship, you are always seeking to draw people together and draw people closer to God. You are always trying to promote peace. Very significant here. The wisdom of the world leads to conflict. The wisdom of God leads us to peace. We are always seeking peace with everyone. As much as it's in our power. We are trying to be at peace with others. So peace-loving, second, gentle. Um, the idea of gentle, when you hear gentle or gentleness, if you're, if you're a guy, you probably don't want to be thought of as a gentle man. Sounds kind of weak, sound like a doormat, um, but that's not the biblical idea of gentleness. Gentle in scripture does not mean weak. It actually is a position of strength. Gentle scripturally means that you are so strong. You are so capable and strong and secure and confident that you can defer your rights. You don't have to insist on all of your rights. You don't have to get your way. You can defer your rights out of love for other people. That's strength. That's gentleness. You're willing to defer your rights. It's strength that was exemplified by Jesus. Jesus is clearly not a weak man. He is God, and yet he was gentle. Gentle in the sense that he was willing to defer his rights as God to serve us. That's gentleness, not insisting on every right. Finally, reasonable. What does reasonable mean? Uh, Literally, it means that you are able to be persuaded. Now, it doesn't mean that you're gullible or weak-minded. It means that you are an open-minded person. You can listen well to other people. You can receive correction. You can be told the error of your ways. In other words, you listen well. You, you play well with others. You are not stubborn. You are not rigid. You work well with other people. You're reasonable. Okay, so the attitude of, of the person who has this true wisdom is peaceable, gentle, and reasonable. Next, James tells us the deeds of true wisdom. What does the life look like of the person who is walking in true wisdom? It is full of mercy and good fruits. Mercy, really significant word biblically and especially in James. Mercy is concern for the person in need. It's a basic idea of mercy. Concern for someone in need. But remember last week, James 2, by concern for someone in need, it doesn't just mean that you have emotions for them. Okay, man, you, you don't have money for food. I feel bad for you. Have a nice life. That's not mercy. Mercy is you pull out your checkbook and you give them money. Mercy is you take them to the store and buy them groceries. Mercy is an action. You take care of those in need. James is saying the life of the truly wise will take care of those in need. 
It is full of good fruits. Fruits here just means good deeds. You are doing good to others on a regular basis. That's how you know true wisdom. That takes us back to verse 13. Look again at that. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. How do you know if a person is wise, truly wise? You look at their deeds. You look at their behavior. Are they doing good deeds of mercy towards others? That's what demonstrates wisdom. Not IQ or PhDs or achievements or success. It's good deeds. But notice, James says, not just good deeds, but good deeds that are done in gentleness. This word gentle here means humility. It means that you don't think too highly of yourself. What James is telling us is true wisdom, for true wisdom, it is not enough to just do the right thing. You have to do the right thing for the right reason. You do it out of humility, not out of pride, not to promote yourself. That's the tragic thing about how charity is done in our world. It's usually done not for the sake of mercy, but for the sake of pride. I'm going to give, I'm going to support this charity and then Facebook about it so everyone will know what a cool person I am. That's not what James is talking about. James is talking about the desire to do good and mercy towards others for their good, for their benefit, because you see yourself as lowly. You want to be below them and promote them. That's what true wisdom looks like. It does deeds of mercy in a spirit of humility, not for self-promotion or pride. Okay, so having told us uh, the attitude of the truly wise, the deeds of the truly wise, he ends with the commitment of the truly wise. He says that those who are truly wise are unwavering and without hypocrisy. Unwavering is the, the key word of James, actually. Unwavering means undivided. That's why we chose a sermon series. That word comes up over and over again, undivided. It means that I give my entire heart to God. I am completely loyal to God. I'm not divided between God and this world. I'm completely faithful to him. So true wisdom gives undivided allegiance to God. And without hypocrisy, hypocrite in Greek, I don't know if you knew this, it was literally a word for an actor. An actor in Greek was a hypocrite because an actor plays a part plays different roles. And James is saying, the person who practices true wisdom doesn't play parts in life. He's not putting on a show for other people. He is true. He's honest. He's sincere. What you see is what you get. He's open and authentic with others. That's what true wisdom looks like. It's honest and sincere. Okay, so that's true wisdom. That is the character of true wisdom. What it looks like when you are living out true wisdom. Finally, James tells us the outcome of true wisdom. That's verse 18. The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's a really confusing phrase to try to translate. I like how the NET, New English Translation, puts it. Say it this way. The fruit that consists of righteousness is planted in peace among those who make peace. Peace. What we should see in this verse is, is again how predominant this idea of peace is. The basic result of the wisdom of this world is conflict. It divides us. It tears apart families and communities and churches. The basic idea of true wisdom is peace. It breeds peace. It sows peace. It plants peace among people. And what is the fruit? What is the result of this peace that we sow among one another in true wisdom? It is righteousness. Now, righteousness is a really wide word biblically. It means a lot of different things. It can mean um, God's absolute righteousness. It can mean our right standing in the sight of God. It can mean our righteous behaviors when we obey God. It doesn't mean any of those things here. What James means in this passage, by this use of the word righteousness, is kind of just the base sense of the word, to be made right. It's the idea, to be made right. James is saying that that when we live out God's wisdom, true wisdom, we make things right. 
in our lives as individuals and as a community, as a church, as a family, as a town, we make things right when we practice God's wisdom. That's the basic idea here. The result, the outcome of of adopting and embracing true wisdom is that individuals, families, and communities are made right. They're made right as God intended them to be full of peace and harmony and unity basic idea. If you will practice the wisdom that comes down from God, then rather than create conflict and division in your relationships, it will draw relationships together. It will bring unity and harmony to life. It will make things right. Okay, so that's counterfeit wisdom versus real wisdom. Let's just summarize this and and draw it together. James wants us to be able to spot the fake because you come across it all the time. Almost the entire world has embraced counterfeit wisdom as if it were the real thing. So how do you spot the difference? Well, counterfeit wisdom, this is what it looks like. It is driven by jealousy and selfish ambition and the pursuit of pleasures. That's what motivates it. And because it's motivated by things, it fosters conflict and evil. That's what flows out of it. That's what results in people in society when they practice counterfeit wisdom. In contrast, the true wisdom that comes down from God, it's characterized by purity in the sight of God. You're in obedience to God. You are peaceful. You are humble. You are full of mercy and honesty. You are loyal to God. It's a basic character of true wisdom. And as a result, it results in, or the outcome of it, the fruit of it is peace and righteousness. Puts us at peace with one another in harmony and unity with one another. So hopefully you can spot the difference. Now, now the question that should come to our minds is how do I make sure I'm living true righteousness rather than the counterfeit? Because it's not like they're sitting on a table right now and I can read how one is misspelled and it's really easy to pick the real deal. How do I live in accordance with true wisdom? We're going to cover that next week. So come back. We're going to talk the rest or the next section in chapter four. James is going to help us understand how do you leave counterfeit wisdom behind and embrace true wisdom from God. That's next week. For this week, what I want us to do, how I want us to apply this passage is to ask ourselves two questions as we go from here. First, have you found the source of true wisdom? Have you found the source of truism? Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 1. We preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The road of wisdom starts in the same place for all people. Where does it start? With Jesus. With believing that Jesus hung on a cross and died for your sins. That is the first step of true wisdom. Without that belief, you cannot be wise. You cannot practice the wisdom that comes from God if you've rejected Christ. Because that is its most basic element. You must wrestle with this thing called the gospel. This incredibly great news that the son of God died on a cross for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could have eternal life. And if there's something that's holding you back from that, if you look at this message of the cross that God really did take on human flesh, really did die for you and rise from the dead, if for any reason that sounds like foolishness to you, please come talk to me. Or please come talk to somebody else here this morning. That's where wisdom begins. You cannot march down this road of wisdom until you wrestle that message to the ground and come to believe it. We'd love to talk to you about that. So have you found the source of true wisdom? True wisdom begins with Christ. For those of us who have found that source, who have trusted in Christ, the next question is, are you walking in true wisdom? 
on a day-to-day basis and the decisions and choices you face in life? Are you following the path of true wisdom that comes down from God or have you bought into the counterfeit, the wisdom of the world? Now, if you're like me, your answer would be, well, a little of both. A little of both. I, I, I want to follow true wisdom. I often follow true wisdom, but sometimes I find myself buying into the lies of this world and following the path of counterfeit wisdom. Okay, so to help you think through your life and think through what type of wisdom you're following, I'd, I'd ask you to think uh, about or reflect on three questions this week, three specific questions you can ask, ask yourself. If you want to know which type of wisdom have I bought into, the real deal or counterfeit, ask yourself first of all, how do I respond when someone frustrates me? When someone frustrates me, so someone gets in your way, someone blocks you from a desire that you had, someone is competing with you, someone uh, gets in the way of you having what you want, how do you respond? Do you respond in anger? Do you respond in in defense, self-defense? You're going to defend yourself, you're going to fight for your rights, you're going to advocate for yourself. That is the wisdom of the world. Or do you respond as a peacemaker? The person who frustrates you and drives you crazy, are you seeking peace with them? Are you gentle and humble towards them? Are you reasonable towards them? That's the way of God's wisdom. Okay, so ask yourself, how do you respond when someone frustrates you? Here's the harder one to ask yourself. How do you respond when someone else gets what you want? How do you respond when someone else does well? Okay, so um, maybe a coworker gets promoted instead of you. Uh, or maybe someone gets a, a bigger house than you got. Or, or maybe a friend gets asked out on Friday night and you don't. How do you respond? Are you able to celebrate with them and genuinely rejoice with them? That's the wisdom that comes from above. Or are you envious? Are you bitter? Does life just feel so unfair to you? That's the wisdom from below, the wisdom of this world. So ask yourself, okay, how do you respond when someone frustrates you? How do you respond when someone does well? Third, how do you respond to those in need? How do you respond to those in need? Because remember, wisdom is measured by deeds of mercy. So when someone is in need, are you tight-fisted? Well, but this money, my time, what I have, it's for me. It's for advancing my career. It's for making my family do better. Is that how you respond, with tight fists, or are you generous? Are you free with what you have to take care of those in need? Ask yourself those three questions this week to try to to see. Ask God to show you and convict you and open your eyes to see whether you're walking in the wisdom of the world or his true wisdom from above. How do you respond when someone frustrates you, when someone does well, um, and and to those in need? let's, Let's go before the Lord and pray And ask him to just open our eyes and help us to see. This is so deceptive. It's so hard to see counterfeit wisdom and spot it in our life. Let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are the source of wisdom. We praise you and thank you that you want to give us wisdom as a gift, not as something we have to attain, not as something that's based on our IQ or our our intelligence or our education. We thank you that wisdom, like all good things, is a free gift that you pour out upon us. And Lord, we want to lift up anyone in this room who has not yet received the the beginning of that wisdom through faith in Jesus Christ. Please open their eyes to see and believe that your son really did die for their sins and rise from the dead so they could have eternal life, this gift of wisdom and life.
And Father, for those of us who have received that gift of of wisdom and life, I pray, Father, this week that your spirit would convict us. We pray, Father, that, that he would do business with us, that he would challenge us and open our eyes, give us insight to see those places in our lives where we are following worldly wisdom. Maybe it's only small places in our lives, Lord, but even if it's just small areas, please convict us and show us of that. Father, help us to see where we're not walking with you. I pray, Father, that you would convict us so that next week as we continue to see um, James unfold true wisdom, that we would be ready to apply what he says and walk in true wisdom. All for your glory and the honor of your son. We thank you so much for Christ. In his name we pray, amen.